0: You're listening to Go Full Crypto. I'm your host, Mugopshi Palway. This podcast is your best resource for crypto stories in the form of discussions and interviews. We uncomplexify tech jargon and we like to keep it simple. My co-host, Kegan Francis and I, we're here to empower you with the knowledge you need to confidently navigate your way into the world of crypto. Join us as we embark on the journey of driving the adoption of cryptocurrency. Join us in Going Full Crypto.
1: The thoughts and opinions expressed by Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and the guests interviewed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are solely their own. At no point in time should the topics of discussion be construed or taken as investment advice. Keegan Francis, Murgakshi Palway, and their guests on this podcast will not be held accountable for any losses. The content discussed on the Go Full Crypto podcast are intended to be for informational purposes only. Welcome to episode 8 of the GoFull Crypto Podcast. In this episode, Murgakshi and I are going to cover the triggers of the various crises that have taken place on the planet thus far. Economic crises, that is. In the past, there have been a number of them, and they've all occurred for a variety of different reasons. Now, personally, economic crisis, the prospect of one happening in the future, terrifies me. I really do not want to find myself in a situation where my hundred dollars in my bank account has half as much buying power tomorrow. I want to know, is there some way that we can leverage the latest and greatest technology, economic technology, available to us today to prevent us or help us get out of a situation like this in the future? In order to figure that question out, we're going to first examine the past crises that have taken place. So, Mugachi, why don't you walk us through a couple of the crises that have taken place?
0: For sure. So I did a quick Google and I found this article that we will link in the show notes. It's titled Five of the World's Most Devastating Financial Crises. And I want to pick out three out of these because they're more relevant to what we want to talk about today. So there's one here, that's the Great Depression of 1929 to 1939.
1: And that's the one that most people are aware of, just simply because of the the cultural undertones of the Great Depression. A lot of people don't really know what caused it. But after you reveal the next couple, we'll we'll see that there's a common thread between each of the economic crises that have uh, befallen our planet.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One that I didn't know of is this next one, the Asian crisis of 1997. Um, and well, this was during the time that I was born and well, I was alive and uh, I still like hadn't heard of it, didn't read it in history books or just wasn't aware of it. Because yeah, I didn't I know what it, happened either. It wasn't talked of, but it seems like a pretty big deal if it's listed on the five most devastating financial crises. And yeah, that's the Asian crisis of 1997. And if I was to read a small snippet of this uh, particular crisis, um, it says, and I quote, speculative capital flows from developed countries to the East Asian economies of Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, Hong Kong, and South Korea had triggered an era of optimism that resulted in an overextension of credit and too much debt accumulation in those economies.
1: Yeah, and just to pinpoint and highlight the the part of that sentence that is the common thread, it's the overextension of credit, which basically translates to consumers slash businesses loaning or getting too many loans and not being able to pay them back eventually. So an overspending or an overzealous uh, uh, credit economy. Well, it, economy. it goes
0: both ways too. So if businesses want more loans and are getting more loans, it's also the bank offering loans to... Um, businesses that maybe already have too many loans so it's uh, like it said also in the statement an over-optimism so the optimism is on both sides the business feeling like they can have that much productivity if they had more money as well as the bank believing that over-optimistic idea and then the third one out of these five that we wanted to share is the financial crisis of 2007-2008 and this is the housing crisis uh, that started in the United States and then basically toppled uh, economies all over the world.
1: And we call it a a housing crisis. And the the crisis that happened in 2008 actually has a couple of root causes, one of which is, yeah, the housing crisis. But underlying to that, it's the mortgage default rates. It's people not being able to keep up on the mortgage payments that that they're supposed to be keeping up on. And that had a ripple effect that eventually, uh, you know, caused uh, <laughs> the entire economy to face collapse.
0: Yeah, and again, it goes both ways. Um, over-optimism in the, the fact that, oh, the real estate is one of the most solid markets ever. Real estate is not going to fail. Um, and again, the over-optimism in banks loaning out money to lenders that were not credit worthy. Yeah. So um, if we were to explore the common theme in these crises in greater detail, it is to do with too much credit that accumulates too much debt with not enough productivity growth to keep up with paying back on that debt
1: right and that's exactly what causes a a collapse or a contraction in the economy and these crises can have various repercussions so like the aftermath after it crashes, what exactly takes place? Sometimes it's inflation. Sometimes it's it's a depression event, like in the 30s, like the Great Depression. And sometimes it's both. And we want to discover if there is some way to protect yourself against that.
0: Well, I kind of want to point out the current stage of the world right now. We're in 2020 and we've just come out of a six month sort of quarantine from the the pandemic that was caused by COVID nineteen, and COVID nineteen was a trigger for stimulating the economy with with money because the economy needed it. Right. But this is also a trigger for hi- inflation, not hyperinflation, but inflation, and the practices that we put in place following this global pandemic is going to determine whether or not the economies all around the world are can safely exit from the state of inflation um, in order to sustain their economic productivity growth.
1: Yeah. And so let's just take a moment to observe why we had a mini economic crisis in March of 2020. And like you rightfully pointed out, COVID is kind of like the pin that popped a, a bubble of sorts. Uh, one way to think about the economy in general is to uh, to think of it as a measure of the amount of collaboration or uh, co-collaboration, interaction, participation between uh, mutually exclusive parties. Uh, one way to think about this is the, the airline industry. They completely shut down, right? And so that section of the economy really just uh, didn't exist in, in March 2020. It, it didn't Apart. exist out of necessity. Yeah. And as a result, there's less money exchanging hands and the economy thrives when money exchanges hands. And That's really what caused uh, one of the things that caused the, the March 2020 collapse. And then we seemed to print our way out of it. We seemed a lot of governments in the world printed money and stimulated the stock market while not actually stimulating uh, job creation.
0: Yeah, well, it's definitely, like you said, one of the things is the airline industry that triggered the popping of that bubble. But we also remember that point in March where oil prices tanked and it was like negative oil prices. You basically, not you, but you needed to pay in order to... Um, wait, I'm forgetting the fact on this one.
1: Yeah, yeah. So You needed
0: to pay to store oil.
1: Well, you, you always need to pay to store oil. Right. It's just that there's too much oil in circulation and oil was still being produced and there was nowhere to put it. And so it was becoming too expensive to hold oil. So people were trying to pay other people to uh, get the oil get, out of their hands right. because it was too expensive for them to store it and keep it anyway.
0: That's the part that I was forgetting. Yeah, thank you. And I remember, like, we've never seen prices as low as we've seen with respect to oil here in Nova Scotia. I remember it was with around 60 cents um, at some point in March or April. And yeah, it's a crazy day. I think I was
1: like seven the last time I saw that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, so again, one of the triggers. And um, like you rightfully said earlier, what can be done to prevent Um, What can an individual do to prevent their money from being um, impacted too heavily by what the government decides to do to save the economy?
1: Right. And before we get to that, I just I want to draw one more common thread through the last crises that have taken place up to 2020. And that's the overextension of credit. Right. Okay. So when the the March 2020 bubble uh, popped and we had a financial crisis... We printed lots of money and all of a sudden, like one of the the advantages or benefits available to us here in Canada is a loan through a government, a $40,000 loan. That is one of the best. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of no questions asked. You don't have to pay any interest on it for uh, two years. And if you pay 75% of it back after so many years, you actually get 10 grand of it for free. And that sounds like an overextension of credit. It sounds like, and in the States, they, they are also handing out loans uh, very overzealously. So even though we printed our way into um, reinflating the stock market, we're also overextending credit. And this for me is a cautionary tale. This is something to be very wary of because this is just the sort of behavior that takes place in the economy just before a major economic collapse like we saw in the Great Depression. The the 20s leading up to the 1930s uh, were known as the Roaring 20s because everyone had a lot of easily accessible money and they were living outside their means. And then when that was no longer sustainable, that's what caused the Great Depression. And I'm afraid that that's going to happen again in the future.
0: Well, there's also the Great Recession, which, was, which is known as... Um the time where, uh, right after the global financial crisis of 2007-2008, wow, sorry, (laughs) that was a hard sentence. (laughs) I got it in the end. Um, Yeah, you're right. So you're afraid that 2020, the COVID-19 is going to be one of the financial triggers, not financial, the triggers for a financial crisis (laughs) um, that will be recorded as possibly one of the most devastating events.
1: Well, I, I just see history repeating itself. I I do see what is happening around the planet as an overextension of credit. And if if we can draw that line through the rest of the economic crises, I think that we should be cautious about the amount of credit that we're over that we are extending and and taking on as uh, as consumers, because eventually that, that might you know well, not work out so well for us. There are
0: two things to say on this. Um, the first thing is if you trust your government and you trust that the people who are in charge of um regulating the amount of money that's in the in the economy if you trust that they're going to make the right decisions to deflate um the amount of money that's in circulation then you're then you can trust that you're in good hands and you don't have to worry too much about your assets and the the cash that you have stored away in your bank account and then the second way to think about it is okay what can i do with my finances so that i don't have to rely on the decisions of the people who, um, who, whose decisions are going to impact my finances.
1: I, yeah. I like the way that you put that. And I think that's a really good transition into what we can explore as individuals in order to protect ourselves against some uncertain impending pending economic collapse. And well, I, I did have a comment on, on one thing you said, if you trust your government, and I, I actually do, I trust the Canadian government, I believe that they have the best intentions, and I believe that they're capable. The thing that I, where I draw the line is, uh, I do think that humans often make unintentional errors, or they're misguided, or they don't know what they don't know. And eventually, we're, we make mistakes. Even if we have the best intentions, we make mistakes. And so I'm in favor of adopting a cryptocurrency based system for many reasons. One of those reasons is that it's simpler and it's out of the hands or it's, out, it's not the control of these cryptocurrency systems and their supply of money uh, is not in the control of humans. So in that way, like humans don't have the same ability to make mistakes with certain cryptocurrency systems in the same way that they have the ability to make mistakes with um, manipulating the supply of Canadian dollars or U.S. dollars in circulation.
0: So to break it down, you're saying that some cryptocurrencies are programmed in a way that uh, there's no outside influence can change what's already fated to be.
1: Right. Yeah. Humans don't have the ability to manipulate the supply of certain cryptocurrencies. And I think that is one of the best things. One of the, That's the best technology that we have available to us.
0: You're right. You said supply to manipulate the supply. And that's an important thing just to bring some attention and light to because the crises that we talked about, and even the the two that we skipped out on, everything is based on supply and demand. Either too much supply and not enough demand, or a little supply and too much demand. Right. And that having an imbalance in that supply demand equation causes um, there to be a crisis of some sort.
1: Well, we touched on that a little bit with the oil uh, in March 2020 when Truman the oil supply. prices went <laughs> below zero. Yep. Right, and I think we can. Th- there was another oil crisis, the, the one of the ones on the list that we didn't mention was an oil crisis in 1973, is known as the OPEC oil crisis, and basically there was uh, a, a cut off of supply, and the demand in the United States for oil uh, went through the roof, and this caused a lot of uh, you know turbulence. Let's put it. Uh, something a little bit more tangible for people to consume is, uh, diamonds. Diamonds are actually are artificially rare because yes, we can pull them out of the ground and there's a finite supply of them, but a lot of them are just locked up and they're not in circulation. And this causes all of the other diamonds in circulation to be worth more. And there's a couple of companies, forget the name of it. Beers. There you go. there's yeah, <laughs> yeah, a good Netflix documentary yeah. on that. Uh, that they control the supply, and therefore they essentially control the price.
0: They did in the beginning. I'm not entirely sure what what is um, the current situation for one, for two. With respect to diamonds, you can now create diamonds in a lab. um, Or something that's as close to diamonds as um, one mine from uh, an ore. I'm not sure where diamonds
1: come from. The ground. The ground. There's a big diamond mine in Russia. Sure. (laughs) where a lot of them come from.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah, well... Circling back to why we're talking about all this is supply and demand, how an imbalance of supply and demand causes there to be an imbalance on a larger scale of, of anything. Mm-hmm. And
1: what can you do to protect we, yourself?
0: Well, we in the previous episode, in episode seven, we talked about financial literacy and crypto literacy. And both of us talked about taking in being in charge of your own finances, because That's just, I think, one of the the things that you fundamentally need to be aware of because money is such an important part of our lives. So how do we protect ourselves from a potential impending financial crisis and how crypto is one of the solutions? Investing in certain crypto assets is one of the solutions is what I think we should talk about next.
1: Awesome. So one of the reasons, one of the ways that I choose to protect myself uh, against these events, these economic crises, is, is by adopting a technology that I see as less risky than staying in the monetary um system that is currently available to us. That's Canadian dollars for us, and I see there as being a certain amount of risk in being in the Canadian dollar system. And so, in the gopher crypto spirit, uh, we're moving out of Canadian dollars and into something a little bit less risky from my perception that that is Bitcoin. And you're laughing. Tell I'm, me why. I
0: just, it's so funny. Um, I com- I'm agreeing with you. I'm like, sure, this is what you're doing. <laughs> it's just in the eyes of so many people, uh, Bitcoin is way more riskier to invest in than staying in Canadian dollar. And it's so funny that you're saying, well, I'm opting out of something that is less, more risky into something that is less risky, which is Bitcoin.
1: Right. Well, I mean, the reason why I see it as so risky is for the reasons that we um, explored earlier in this episode.
0: You should state the reasons why you think that Bitcoin is a less risky asset than being in a fiat or like a government currency.
1: Right. So government currencies are not capped in terms of their supply. And I see I'm making observations about what's going on in in the planet right now in the globe. We've got high unemployment. We've got an overextended credit system. Uh, there's a particular statistic with respect to Canadian uh, debt and consumer debt is at an all-time high, which basically means people are carrying a lot of credit card debt and uh, eventually that if we don't do something to curb that and unemployment keeps going up, that's a, that's a really bad recipe. And so who's going to be affected by that? Well, it's the people that are going to be affected by that is people who are holding the Canadian dollar and because we may need to print ourselves out of that situation. And when we print money, the value of our money goes down, uh, the buying power goes down, and with respect to other assets, other assets go up. So I'm holding Bitcoin because I it's kind of like I'm shorting the Canadian dollar. And for people who don't don't really know what that means, it means I'm betting against the Canadian dollar. Um, but I'm also betting against the US dollar and other, other world assets. Uh, the reason why I have so much faith in cryptocurrencies, and one in particular, Bitcoin, is because of essentially the cap supply and the mechanism in which uh, more supply comes into circulation. And we covered that pretty extensively in uh, the episode about mining, how mining works. I believe that's episode five. Yeah. And just to recap, there's 21 million Bitcoin. No one can change that. And I love that fact that no human has the ability to manipulate that supply. And okay. that's why I see it as less risky.
0: Okay. But you are you a diverse investor or is most of your net worth in Bitcoin?
1: Uh, I definitely diversify my cryptocurrency investments. Uh, There is an interesting kind of cryptocurrency called a stablecoin. And that's a coin that is pegged to a real world asset. And so if I hold uh, one TUSD, it's called a tether. It is equivalent to holding $1 of U.S. dollars, uh, so a one one dollar bill, and it has all the benefits of cryptocurrency. Um, so I'm able to transfer it over borders and all that good stuff, and it also holds its value. And a certain amount of uh, my cryptocurrency is in the, these kinds of stable coins that allow me to uh, to hold value over time and not be exposed to the volatility in cryptocurrency.
0: All right, but. You, well, stable coins are still pegged um, to the dollar value in, in, the, like in the real world. So even if, let's say, the U.S. dollar fails or the purchasing power, the buying power of the U.S. dollar is significantly decreased, your one tether is still representative of the real world U.S. dollar.
1: Cool. I'm glad you brought this up. So what I am doing with my stable coins is I'm actually invested in a bit of a savings account, if you will. There's various uh, cryptocurrency services out there that allow me to deposit my my tether, my US dollar stablecoin, and earn a percent of interest for having it with them, having it with that service. And basically all banks work like this. But the interest rate with banks for holding your US dollar in banks can be as low as 0.08%, which is an absolutely horrendous rate of return. So if inflation goes up by 3% in a year, if your supply goes up, then your essentially your US dollar devalues by about 3%. Now, if I'm getting a better savings account rate than 3%, Let's say I deposit my, my stable coin, my stable USD in a cryptocurrency that offers me 5% return. Then even if the supply is inflated by 3%, I'm still in in the positive. I make that 2% margin.
0: Okay, but you're not really investing your, your money into an asset because stable coin is sure a crypto asset, but it's... It's not something that grows in its value over time. It simply is a way to hold a stable value. That's right. So my question to you is, in order to protect yourself against an economic crisis, would, you wouldn't put your money in a stable coin. No. But if it wasn't in Bitcoin, how do you choose your assets? Do you How have you diversified your investment portfolio to make sure that your money is in places where it will grow over time?
1: That's that's a really deep question. And <laughs> I, I think that's a perfect topic for our next episode. Okay. Uh, because I think that any cryptocurrency can be evaluated on a number of different metrics. And one of those metrics we touched on already, it's, this, it's how scarce is it? How rare is it? And uh, what is the mechanism in which, in which more of that coin comes into circulation? And those are the kinds of things I like to look at when diversifying my portfolio, I need a really good reason to move my money out of Bitcoin and into a different asset. And I think we can dedicate a whole episode to picking like five cryptocurrencies (laughs) and just talking about what makes those cryptocurrencies interesting as long-term investments or even short-term investments.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. In my case, um, I'm not shorting the Canadian dollar because <laughs> at the end of the day, I still have to pay my bills in Canadian dollar, which right. is why it's necessary that some amount of money is liquid, is available to me when I need it. And I definitely. Me as well. Yeah. Well, we,
1: like on any month to month, like we keep about one or two months worth of Canadian dollars in our actual bank accounts so that we can spend the money
0: which eventually we won't need to because of the certain cryptocurrency um, applications that allow us to convert any crypto asset into a uh, Canadian dollar to spend at the end of the day. Yeah. But we can, again, <laughs> <laughs> talk about that later. Um, so we've t- touched on a little, a little bit on how to protect yourself against this. And I feel like in order to really get deeper into that topic, the next episode we will dedicate to analyzing a cryptocurrency asset. Just a really quick disclaimer, we are experts in cryptocurrency, but you if you trust stocks more or investing into um like an asset that isn't in crypto, that's also completely up to you. We're not saying that crypto is the only savior of um uh, sustaining your money.
1: Yeah, but and, it's and, like, what we know me. about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, like just another plug on cryptocurrency uh, it's been Mentioned in this in the crypto sphere that it's semi detached from the happenings of the global economy or the stock market, and and the reason why I would like the the point that I would bring up to to back up that that claim is uh, in March twenty twenty when the stock market crashed the government was able to inject cash directly into the stock market to re inflate it, and that is just simply not something that people can really do with the cryptocurrency market. If the cryptocurrency um, bubbles per- burst, like we all have to deal with that bubble. And I'm okay with that because I know that no one is manipulating it. Uh, to me, the government reinflating the stock market is a manipulation of it because essentially what they did was put lots of money at the expense of the taxpayer in order to reinflate the economy. But they didn't, at the same time, they did not fix the unemployment. And so now we've got this weird dichotomy.
0: Yeah, just to also be very clear, when you say the government um, instilled, not instilled, stimulated the stock market with money, we're very specifically talking about the U.S. markets. Is that? Because do you have any other markets that you were thinking of when you said? The
1: government? No, that, that's that's the main one. Like I, I'm not very well versed in uh, other countries. Uh, I mostly follow Canadian and and uh, United States. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, because we live on this side of the world and that makes sense with relevance to the stock market, but with respect to the cryptocurrency market, I just want to make this dis- distinction that the crypto market is worldwide, just yes. like the Internet. So when you say that nothing can be stimulated into the market, it's because it's, it's decentralized. There's no central authority that controls the entire or all, all the cryptocurrencies in the crypto market.
1: I did want to like plug in a little funny tidbit. Sure, uh, go ahead. So the United States had these stimulus checks worth twelve hundred dollars oh, a piece, yeah. right? And so around the time that they were issued and actually made it to the to uh, the uh, the actual citizens of the United States, there was a an uptick, like a recorded uptick of purchases for exactly twelve hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin on some of the like, the major cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase and Gemini. And I just find that hilarious because here we just said that. Uh, the the government can't like stimulate the cryptocurrency economy, but really they indirectly did. They issued this money, they printed it, they gave it to their citizens, twelve hundred dollars a piece, and a certain percentage of those citizens immediately took that twelve hundred dollars check and pumped it into Bitcoin. Which that just makes me laugh a little bit.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> okay yeah yeah for sure um and and speaking of that uh i didn't finish my sentence earlier with respect to not shorting the canadian dollar
1: yeah please go on yeah Yeah.
0: but i'm a no i shouldn't say but okay i am a cryptocurrency essentialist and what that means is i don't have a very diverse portfolio there wouldn't be more than five different cryptocurrencies that i invest and that's because i'm I'm not interested in keeping up to what's happening in more than a select few number of crypto assets. And again, we'll touch on the the various types of cryptocurrency um investor you can be, and um, I'm just a cryptocurrency essentialist.
1: and I love that. I love that perspective. It because crypt, investing in cryptocurrency, especially if you're in more than five of them, is if it's almost a full- time job, just keeping up with what's happening. The, the pace of innovation in the cryptocurrency world is is blinding. It seems like every day there's a new kind of cryptocurrency with all these different features that didn't exist before. And being an essentialist is sounds really stress free. It you know, sounds like a wonderful life.
0: Yeah, well, <laughs> I came to this conclusion after two, two years of trying everything out. <laughs> right. And uh, we have created a video on the kind of cryptocurrency investors we are. So we will publish that when it's fully produced. Um, but I just wanted to plug in how I um, protect my, my assets or protect my money in the form of assets is just by being very essential with the number of um, cryptocurrency assets that I find are going to be of value and going to give me great returns
1: in the future. Yeah, it, it kind of seems like the essentialism goes hand in hand with confidence in the things that you've invested in.
0: Yeah, and that also requires a ton of research, too, because it's not like I'm going to choose five or I have chosen five and like those are the ones that I put most of my money in. Um, but again, we're scratching the surface of a different topic and I'd much rather stick to triggers of a crisis and how to protect yourself diving deeper into how cryptocurrency is different.
1: Sure. So w- why don't we summarize and, and wrap up this episode then?
0: Yeah, for sure. So we initially started this episode with talking about the triggers of a crisis. We stated five of them. One was uh, the Great Depression in 19... 19-
1: 1930s-ish.
0: 1929 to nineteen thirty. Then the Asian crisis of 1997, where we talked about uh, the overextension of credit and too much debt accumulation just directly from this article itself. And then also talked about the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. The common thread in all of them being uh,
1: an overextension of credit
0: and an optimism or over-optimism in the rate at which the economy was producing money. And um, after that we talked a little bit about Keegan your <laughs> you being scared about an impending and potential financial crisis. Yes. And your strategy into safeguarding the your your assets, your your money. And then we talked a little bit about what I do and the, the kind of cryptocurrency um investor I am. And we also touched a little bit on how cryptocurrency is different from the stock market or how the cryptocurrency market is different from each stock market because- I would
1: say it's how it's detached from the happenings of government-regulated stock markets.
0: Yeah, how it is detached from the regular happenings of government-induced-
1: Government-regulated stock markets.
0: Government-regulated stock markets. I was trying to go somewhere else with the government-induced stimulus, but yeah, sure. And then how the cryptocurrency market is also Uh, more whole in a sense because it's more captive of what's of the innovations that are taking place and being born out of um, all around the world countries and places all around the world as opposed to uh, the stock market being mostly representative of what happens in some particular geographies and uh, in the next episode we are going to cover how we analyze any crypto asset before we decide whether or not we want to put money into it and whether or not we feel like it is a promising asset, not feel determined that it's a promising asset. Awesome. Do you have any parting thoughts, Keegan?
1: No, that was was a great summary.
0: Okay, cool. Thank you for listening, everyone, and stay tuned.